The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Um, we are uh, doing a little pastor swap through the month of January. And so uh, last weekend I was in Lakeway, today in Leander, next week uh, Lakeline, and then the following week in, uh, down in Kyle. And so we've got four churches within our Axe Church network. And what we're doing is we're focusing on four critical words from the Nicene Creed. These four words were actually added in uh, about 50 or 60 years after the first council that met. Uh, They actually added these words in, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so if we change those from being adjectives to define the church into action words, what we want to do in this series is talk to you about if the church takes on these actions, what does it look like? So, who grew up in the church? Let me see your hands. All right. I grew up in the church, too. Let me tell you what that means. For me, it means Trinity Lutheran Church and School in Boone, Iowa. Don't I get a cheer for Iowa? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, It means... it means carpeting down the aisle, it means pews, it means a cro- wooden cross hangings, uh, stained glass windows, a balcony with a choir up in the balcony. You weren't allowed to turn around to see where the music was coming from. You faced the front. Um, for me, church means being aware of my dad up front in a pulpit. He's wearing robes. That's a little weird, right? I didn't think it was weird. That's all I ever knew when I went into a church. Uh, for me, that meant sitting next to my mom when my dad was up front and leaning up against her arm and trying not to wiggle too much on the pew and kick my sister inadvertently, I assure you. Um, it means the aroma of coffee and leftover ladies' perfume down in the fellowship hall. We had a basement. It means being uh, railroaded into playing the piano by our Sunday school superintendent for our openings for the kids on Sunday mornings. It means being with my friends and my family and the families of my friends. It means special events like weddings and funerals and anniversaries and ordinations and confirmations. It means softball leagues as I got older and it means youth group and ping pong. It means visiting missionaries with intriguing stories about far-flung places in the world. Now, if uh, you grew up in a church that is in some way, maybe you can relate to all those things or maybe one or a couple of those things, who can relate to church as I describe it? Okay. If you can't, don't worry. That's the beautiful thing about today and about this series. Because some of us grew up with an experience of church like that. And if you notice, what I did was I focused on the cultural experience of church and not on the content of church. And in the culture that we have today, fewer and fewer people are interested in the culture of church that many of us are still trying to offer. And if you haven't figured it out yet, our culture has lots of other things to do than to get connected through here. Uh, We have in our culture, we have this thing called Netflix. Have you heard of it? Uh, We have CrossFit. Have you heard of it? We have places where people gather, like brew pubs and coffee shops, and um, we have Top Golf, for God's sake. Why do people need the church to connect and to form community around? They don't. And so if all we're doing is offering a cultural experience of what the church is, then we're missing something. Let me tell you this very simply. We are living in a post 
Christendom age. Now notice what I'm not saying. I didn't say we're living in a post-Christian age. Christianity is actually alive and well. In fact, Christianity is exploding in major population centers of the world, places like Asia, uh, India, places like South and Central America, Africa. Christianity is doing just fine. But Christendom is waning. Uh, Todd Bolsinger, who's the vice president in charge of leadership development, he's uh, at Fuller Seminary based out in California. He says this, In the Christendom mental model under which most of us were trained, pastors weren't missionaries and churches weren't missions. We were teachers, worship leaders, and counselors. We were social workers, community organizers, and program providers. We were mostly chaplains for a congregation within a Christendom culture. For many of us in mid-career, and he's talking about Christian leaders now, it's like we woke up one morning and found ourselves ministering in a cross-cultural setting where we don't understand the customs, language, and values. We are now in uncharted territory facing the same adventure-or-die moments, and if traditional churches are going to become missionary churches— then pastors must truly be missional leaders of missional communities. So in 2019, today more than ever, we have to ask the question, what is the church? I'm not even sure how you would answer that if you just had to do it in two minutes. But uh, it's tough to separate out what the church is from what the church does, but let me just try in 60 seconds to tackle what the church is, all right? Um, If you want to look at the screen, these are going to go pretty fast. But first of all, church is... Literally, the gathering. It comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which is really a word, a verb for called out. So literally, the church is those who are called out. What the church is not, uh, the church is not uh, the German word kirka. The church is not a place. Somewhere along the line, as we translated the Bible, and there's a whole part of the chapter, about 1500, that was in Germany, and a lot of the translations then started replacing this Greek word, ekklesia, a gathering, to kirka, which is a building. And so when we think kirka, the word church comes from that, we started to think of the church being a place, but the church is not a place. Third, the church is not an hour on Sunday when we say, see you at church, or let's do that after church. If the church is just an hour on Sunday, then what happens once we all leave here, once the hour is over? Does the church cease to exist? Question? No, it doesn't. Uh, So if the church is not those things, if the church is a gathering, it is a people, and even more specific, the church is people in motion, people who are gathering and then scattering, whereas Pastor Barrett likes to say at Acts Church Lakeline, loved and sensed. Or as we want to say for this series, the church is an apostolic movement. So, when we say that the church is one holy Catholic, an apostolic church, don't worry, we're not flipping denominations on you. Catholic, in the wide sense of the term, means universal or made up of many parts. And so the church, uh, when you hear uh, that particular message in a couple weeks, the church has got to be reconciling. We're taking all these disparate people and parts and we're bringing them together constantly. That's what the the banner that the church operates under. The church is all embracing. Uh, If you had seen that little video, you would have heard these words. 
When we declare the church to be one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, we are drawn into the missionary activity of the triune God. The first disciples who were uh, turned apostles, which literally means sent ones, were sent out into the world. And apostolic in that sense that we're talking about it today does not just talk about our founding, it talks about our function. Um, back in the day, if your last name was Farmer, guess what you did? Trick question. You were a farmer, right? Uh, if your last name was Smith, what was your occupation? You were a blacksmith, right? Somebody who works with metals and hot fires. Is it possible that we, we, when we use the word Christian or apostolic, we're not just talking about our founding, but we're talking about our function? If we are the church, then we are proclaiming. And I want to say to you, Acts across four sides right now and any other churches that you plant will be apostolic or proclaiming churches. Uh, one more quote from Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. He says, to live up to their name, local churches must be continually moving out, extending themselves into the world, being the missional witnessing community we were called into being to be. The manifestation of God's going into the world, crossing boundaries, proclaiming, teaching, healing, loving, serving, and extending the reign of God. In short, churches need to keep adventuring or they will die. Uh, ten years ago, we formed four values built on this name, Acts. They are adventure, community, transformation, and sending. Little did we know how well those four words would serve us for this post-Christendom age that we had the hunch we were moving into, but we weren't still quite sure how fast it was going to happen. Ten years later, I'm going to say there are lots of signs that we're already in the next age, not just in transition. We've already arrived. And we're going to either look back and try to stay there and try to go back and try to recreate that, or we're going to move forward into a post-Christendom age so let's, uh, let's just be honest for a minute. This kind of adventuring is hard, right? Going to the world, crossing boundaries, proclaiming, teaching, healing, loving, serving, extending the right of God. Now, th what, you, uh, what you heard from Rick, the report that you did, great job, church. You're doing it, right? But this is hard. Um, this kind of work is uh, very difficult. Um, so this little book, Canoeing the Mountains, the central metaphor for this is uh, the adventure of Lewis and Clark. Have you heard of those guys? Start of the 19th century, um, this is uh, kind of the place, their core of discovery. For over 300 years, four sovereign nations were doing their best to find the inland water route that would connect the Pacific Ocean with the Gulf of Mexico. Everybody knew that this water route had to exist. They just had to be the first ones to find it. But when Meriwether Lewis finally arrived at the source of the Missouri River in Montana after 15 months of canoeing upstream, this is what he discovered. I'm just going to quote from the book for a moment. 300 years of experts had been completely and utterly wrong. In front of him was not a gentle slope down to a navigable river running to the Pacific Ocean, but the Rocky Mountains, stretching out for miles and miles as far as the eyes could see, was one set of peaks after another. There was no Northwest Passage, no navigable river, no water out. The driving assumption of the biggest, the best, the most adventurous and entrepreneurial and creative experts 
regarding this new world had been absolutely mistaken. Even more, Lewis's core of discovery had discovered that the entire mental model regarding the continent was wrong. For the second assumption at work in the minds of the explorers of the day was this, that the geography west of the, the continental divide was the same as the geography east of it. All had assumed that in the same way the land rose gently over thousands of miles to a peak, it would also descend gently to the Pacific Ocean, and so in the same way they'd been able to take a keelboat and canoes up a river, they would be able to go downriver to the ocean. But in truth, Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery were about to go off the map and into an uncharted territory. They would have to change plans, give up expectations, even reframe their entire mental model and their mission. What lay before them was nothing short of what was an adventure. There were no experts, no maps, no best practices, and no sure guides who could lead them safely and successfully the true adventure, the real discovery was just beginning. I contend that that's our experience in the church today. That's where we are. And we've got to figure out a new way to be as we move forward. Can I get an amen? Half of you are convinced. Maybe more. We're working on it. Uh, perhaps a good reason why in ages past God reassured his chosen people in times of great change, do not be afraid, be strong and courageous, have I not commanded you, right? This is what he told Joshua right before he's ready to go into the promised land. Moses, the great guy before him, had passed the baton, and now Joshua's ready to go off the map. And the Lord says to him, Joshua, do not be afraid, be strong and courageous, it happens again and again throughout the story of Scripture. God reassures us. The reports had come back from the new land that there were giants in the land. Was it true? Joshua had to contend with those reports. Well, yeah, there were giants in the land. Let me tell you this. There will always be giants in the lands. But he is still told to go to lead and to move boldly, trusting in God. Do you notice how there are some people who just can't help but sign up for the tough assignment? All through the story of Scripture, there's those people. New Testament, there's this guy named Saul turned Paul. Look what he writes. He says, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. Look at this. So that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Read that last line with me. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. Paul says, I don't want the easy work let me go into the uncharted territory. That's the apostolic understanding. You know, you know what else is apostolic? Being run out of town, being flogged, being stoned, giving up your friends, giving up your home, giving up your life, that's also apostolic. We forget that. So let me simply tell you today's big idea. Uh, just remember, this series, Acts in Motion, we're looking at how the church lives and moves in the world. So here it is. Acts churches follow the lead of the biblical apostles in preaching, teaching, mobilizing, and sending disciples who make disciples who plant churches that plant churches. That's simply it. I've already talked to you about why, the fact that we are in this post-Christian age, but we haven't yet talked about how. Or more fittingly, who. Right now, just close your eyes.
I want you to point at the person in the room who is responsible for proclaiming the gospel. One, two, three, go. I'm really glad to see very few fingers pointing my direction. I was going to leave. Who did you point at? Yourself? I saw a lot of these, right? In the Christendom age, the age that we just passed, the pastor was responsible for proclaiming the gospel. My dad, when I was growing up, he was the one that preached. He was the one that led devotions at home. When we visited somewhere else, we had a function at the church. People would say, Pastor, would you offer the prayer? And guess what he said? He always said, Yes, bow your heads. When I go to your house, you say, Pastor, would you like to pray? I go, no, you pray. Have your kids pray. And only when somebody really starts sweating profusely, might I step in and rescue them. That was the Christendom age. We are now past that. Maybe we should look at the lead of the apostolic apostles. Look at this, 2 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle, there he is, he, he uh, entitles himself apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And now look at the relationship. Read that second line with me out loud. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all set within relationship. Now, let me be clear. There is an important place for apostles, for prophets, for teachers, for shepherds. Those are all specifically called out in the New Testament. I'm not trying to do away with that. We need those. In fact, in this book of Timothy, you have an apostle speaking to a pastor, one who is more of a shepherd teacher. But what is it that he's being passed on? Dropping down to verse 8, this is what Paul says to Timothy. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, anytime Paul's talking about any subject, he tries to sneak in the gospel. See how he just did it? He just gave us the content of our faith and how that is tied in with Jesus specifically. Now he's gonna shift and talk about his own role. He says, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, it seems so far that Paul is still the one in charge, right? Paul is the apostle. He is the herald of the gospel. High fives all around, you're off the hook. No. Instructions are not over. Look at this, six and seven. For this reason, I remind you to what? You see it? Fan, read it with me. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So apparently, something has been passed on from Paul to Timothy, and now Timothy is somehow responsible for this thing that was given to him. It's his responsibility to take whatever this was given and fan it into what? Flame. Flame. 
right? And then this. And what you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is only in us pastors, right? No, the Bible says clearly the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all who believe. Not just pastors. So this gift of the Holy Spirit has been given. And then moving on, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Look at this. Four generations of disciple making. Paul to Timothy, Timothy to, to reliable people, and then reliable people to others. Three steps, four generations. Catch that? 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2. Four generations of disciple making. What we see here is mature disciple equals missional disciple. A lot of us grew up in a Christendom age where we believed that a mature disciple was the one who signed up for all the pastor's classes. This was the person who ushered. They were in church every week. Their kids were in youth group. We saw those as being faithful disciples. And yet I would say to you, a mature disciple is a missional disciple. Remember that the Pharisees could rattle off all of the scriptures that they had memorized in Sunday school, and Jesus called them what? Hypocrites. He scorned them because they were far from the kingdom. A mature disciple is a man or a woman, a guy or a girl, who is faithful with what is given them. Uh, do you remember the parable of the talents? One guy's given one, one guy's given three, one guy's given five units of money. Let's just call them bags of gold, all right? First guy takes his five and then invests it, has five to present to the master when the master returns. Second guy takes his three, produces three more. The guy who has one produces no, zero. He buries it in the ground so that when his master asks for his initial investment, he has just preserved it. That's all he's done with it. And he calls him a wicked servant. Don't miss that. This was my filter when I started journaling over who God wanted me to invest in. I started the process last summer, and I started in my journal just writing out names. Uh, your pastor is one of the names on my list. But I started asking, who is it that is faithful with what's invested in them? Um, so I started writing these out, and I actually ended up, I visited uh, in January, I now have uh, about 50 names total, and then about 12 that I'm really focusing on, and then three that I picked out, different layers of investment and intimacy and impact. Ralph Moore, uh, who's uh, in his 70s, he's planted over 2,600 churches in America. He says, don't tell me what your plan for disciple making is. Tell me who. So who are you investing in, in 2019? This is the ultimate test of the effectiveness of our gospel proclamation. 
Church, let me say it to you this way. If you are not taking the things that you have heard me say or your pastor say and passing them on to others, then we have no disciple-making movement. We have cultural Christianity, but we don't have an apostolic movement, and we never will. This is the end of the line. Are you okay with that? Think of your existing circles of friendships. A lot of times people say, I got to start over meeting people. I got to go out and proclaim it from the housetops. No, just look around. Who's already in your circle of relationships? Name three people whom you will invest in this year. That's my challenge for you today. Two, hopefully, inside the local church, and then at least one outside. If we each did that, guess what would happen? It would be an explosion. Sorry, it will be an explosion. It was helpful to me as I journaled and prayed over the names that God was given to me to write down the guidelines that I saw in 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 2. Maybe these will be helpful for you as you ask God, who are the disciples who will make disciples? This is what I saw. Maybe this will be helpful. I first of all asked, who has multiplication capacity and proven results? Ask that about whom you're investing in. Second of all, who displays eager desire and sincere faith? Just as an aside, if you're sitting there going, I wish somebody would disciple me, that never happened to me. Ask somebody, will you disciple me? Will you invest in me? And if they have a look of horror in their eyes, it's okay. You're both gonna figure it out. Don't ask your pastor to disciple you. Ask somebody who's maybe one or two steps in front of you. That's all you need to do. And it's gonna grow them and it's gonna grow you. Third, ask who stays anchored in grace. Third, who remember, or fourth, who remembers Jesus is the gospel? Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. That's what he says really clearly. Acts of kindness are good, but only Jesus is good news. And so somewhere along the line, we have to start talking about Jesus. Cold cups of water are helpful, but if they don't lead to Jesus, we got a problem. So this next one, who's not ashamed of the authentic and sometimes messy testimony of others? Um, There's some real messy stories I know in the people that are part of Acts Church Lakeway. I'm imagining they are here too. We can't back away from the mess. And sometimes in settings, there's an appropriate way to share part or all of that story. Who's also not afraid of difficulty or conflict? Paul says to Timothy, endure hardship with us. Uh, We had kind of a tough fall on our staff at X Church Lakeway. But the people that stood up during that time were the people who had stepped into leadership and they were the people that were being discipled who were getting strong in the word and in prayer and in grace. And they were the first ones to take the hit. Who's not afraid of that? And finally, who keeps the mission the main thing? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, don't have anything to do with stupid and foolish arguments. It's a great reminder, isn't it? You might be looking at this list saying, you know what, that's really great, but I've got a family. I don't have time to do this kind of stuff. 
Well, remember, Jesus had the three. Who are, who are his three? Closest three. Peter, James, and John. He made a greatest investment there. Then he had the 12. The three were part of the 12. And then beyond the 12, he had the 70 that he sent out two by two. And then beyond that, he had 500 at least. And you're like, well, I'm not Jesus. Yeah, you're right. You're not. But there are different levels of proximity and intimacy and investment. And keep in mind that Jesus didn't neglect the three in order to disciple the 70. Don't overlook your own family to disciple the world. Start there. Start with your family. But, hear this, I'm convinced that if all we do is disciple our own kids, then we are missing the entire thrust of the Great Commission, which says to go. I believe God gives us grace to have a life that involves both sides of that. So, we're going to close this part, and I want you to reflect on these things on the screen. And you might, not have, you might be thinking of somebody who doesn't meet a single one of those requirements other than the fact that they have an eagerness. That's okay. If you're pretty far along on this disciple-making journey, you might be looking for somebody who's going to pass that on to somebody else, and you're going to be looking for quite a few of these categories to say, I want the investment to be passed on and passed on and passed on. But I want you to reflect on these for about 60 seconds before we move into time of confession and Lord's Supper. But let me close by telling you this. Remember, church, you are the proclaiming church. And remember that Jesus is the living center of your apostolic witness. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we ask that um, these words would be just... Uh, just truly words that, that move into our hearts that don't just bounce off of us or don't just stay in this room after we leave it. Uh, we, are, we are reminded that the church is a living organism. It is those who are called out, those who gather right now, but in a moment, those who are gonna scatter. And we pray that this word, this powerful word might go with us, that we might carry it forward, that we might carry it outward, that we would not neglect those who are closest to us and looking around us to say, do these people know Christ? And how might they grow toward Christ? Lord, we reflect on this in the next few moments. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would nudge us. And whatever it is that you would have us learn, whatever it is that you would have us take in, Lord, that's the ultimate test that we might receive, that we might be changed through Jesus, our Savior. We pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.